is not this simpler? Is this not your natural state? It's the unspoken truth of humanity that you crave subjugation. The bright lure of freedom diminishes your life's joy in a mad scramble for power, for identity. You were made to be ruled. In the end, you will always kneel. This uh, scene from the Marvels, the Avengers, seems in some ways quaint and at the same time scary as it we think about the current moment of uh, uh, actual and aspiring dictators and the amount of liberal democracies that are backsliding into uh, authoritarianism. And there is a real lure you can see to authoritarian to authoritarian rhetoric of one strong man or woman to take over everything make things simpler fight against the ones that you want to fight against and not have to worry about it yourself just to be a follower what kind of counter rhetoric what kind of antidote or weapon do we have to defend democracy, to, to argue against the tyrants and against tyranny? It used to be a very common theme or a very common trope to make arguments against tyranny, but uh, we've become somehow decadent, jaded, not as idealistic as we used to be because of uh, much abuse of those terms. But uh, we do need, I think, a renaissance or a return to the rhetoric that made democracy preferable and made it clear why de democracy was preferable to ty tyranny. And uh, they had this in ancient Athens and in uh, the Roman Republic before it became tyrannical. And it's called the topos of the tyrant. So in the old school ret rhetoric schools of Athens and Rome, one of the rhetorical exercises given to advanced students was to rhetorically slay a tyrant by using something called the topos of a tyrant. Um, in a measured invective, the students would lay out the six vices of a tyrant to remind their audience what it meant to be free from tyranny, as well as to move them to action against a budding tyrant or tyrannical tendencies in their society. The freedom they had to exhibit this exercise was a good indication, actually, of the actual freedom they had to ha they enjoyed in their societies. Two rhetoricians, Secundus and Maternus, were put to death by, respectively, Caligula and Domitian, two tyrants. When they performed the topos of the tyrant as rhetorical exercises at the festivals, I guess they did too good of a job, and the tyrants got a really good look at themselves and felt that they were being attacked. The topos of a tyrant is an exercise, I think, we could profitably uh, adopt in our society as a safeguard of liberty and a ready weapon against tyranny. In this, uh, so this time I'll try to explain the exercise and give a model you can use and spread as you choose. So here goes, let's slay a tyrant. First, a little bit of theoretical groundwork to define what I mean by tyranny. Paul Woodruff, 
it has the best description I have seen so far in his book, First Democracy. He writes, The idea of a tyranny is among the greatest gifts we have from ancient Greece because it nails down a vital, va- vital way to think about freedom. The ancient Greeks realized there is a kind of government that destroys people by dividing them, while it diminishes their leaders by cloud- clouding their mind. The leader may be a person or a group, and a tyranny may arise from what is nominally a democracy. Like a disease, tyranny is recognized by its symptoms. These symptoms are the features of political leadership that the ancient Greeks most feared. And the Greeks were right to fear them. If you observe any of these symptoms in your leaders, be wary. A plague could be on its way, and it could fatally weaken your freedoms. These are the six uh, recognizable symptoms. 1. A tyrant is afraid of losing his position and his decisions are affected by this fear. 2. A tyrant tries to rise above the rule of law, though he may give lip service to the law. 3. A tyrant does not accept criticism. 4. A tyrant cannot be called to account for his actions. 5. A tyrant does not listen to advice from those who do not curry favor with him, even though they may be his friends. And 6. A tyrant tries to prevent those who disagree with him from participating in politics. So why is this so bad? Some people have thought that, uh, uh, well, if you don't have anything to fear, why should you fear, for example, that someone is, uh, that the state has all knowledge about you? Have we forgotten that almost everyone who has been given absolute power with no restraints has actually used it? The results have not been pretty. The rhetoric schools outlined six vices of the tyrant to help people keep this in mind. These vices are cruelty, savagery, suspicion, arrogance, immorality, and avarice. The students would then explain and amplify those vices by giving descriptions, examples, and stories to make it clear to the audience and remind a democratic audience why they needed to fear this and be on guard against it. I'll provide a brief outline, but you can easily fill in the details and examples of your own. I think we have a lot of examples of this in our current society. A tyrant, so first of all, suspicion. A tyrant can have no real friends, for he knows that his power is illegitimate and is only supported by force. As a result, he is constantly suspicious, even of those who want what is best for him. He believes the slightest rumor of a threat against him, and sees every talented individual as a challenge to his power. As Euripides write, wrote, when the, power, when the people govern a country, they rejoice in the young citizens who are rising to power, whereas a man who is king thinks them his enemy and kills the best of them, and any he finds to be intelligent because he fears for his power. Every tyrant has needed informants, secret police, and surveillance In our days, the thought police have taken the role of the bodyguard as the vanguard of tyranny. The ancients recognized that a tyrant first asks for a bodyguard because he knows he will need protection from his people and the power of force in order to carry out his crimes. In our days, the tyrant first seeks intelligence about dissenters and the ability to spread an atmosphere of fear and distrust among his subjects. It is always defended with a need for security or law and order, but too late the people realize that the security he was talking about was his, and the threat was them. This is the necessity for a tyranny tyranny of one 
over many can only endure by the oppressive fear created by a police state splintering everyone into their own shell of terror, never knowing who is watching or listening. Second and third, cruelty and savagery, these go together. A tyrant relies on terror to silence opposition, and the fear of the citizenry must be kept vivid by regular demonstrations of power and cruelty. This Thus, thus is just, it is not a question of whether or not a specific, specific victim deserves this treatment because of any action on their part. Rather, a display of cruelty and power in itself is a goal, and so-called crimes against the state are often more pr- mere pretenses in order to organize these displays. Tacitus describes the murders committed by Emperor Tiberius after he had seized complete power. Quote, Frenzied with bloodshed, the emperor now ordered the execution of all those arrested for complicity. It was a massacre. Without discrimination of sex or age, there they lay, strewn about or in heaps. Relatives and friends were forbidden to stand by or lament them, or even gaze for long. Guards surrounded them, spying on their sorrow, and escorted the rotting bodies until, dragged into the Tiber, they floated away or grounded, with none to cremate, or touched them. Terror had paralyzed human sympathy. Sympathy, The rising surge of brutality drove compassion away. This is, the goal of, this is the goal of cruelty, to paralyze human sympathy and drive away compassion by terror and brutality. This is the hollow existence of a people living under tyranny. The fourth, arrogance. Along with being a vice, arrogance in some ways is a necessity for a tyrant. How else can he defend asserting his will contrary to the wishes of his subjects? He needs to believe that he is above them. He needs to make himself in some ways a superhuman, almost a god as the Roman emperors did. His reign serves as a kind of devotion to his massive ego. Some people have called this uh, narcissism. Raised on a throne of power... Above everyone else, he looks down upon the puny humans below him as little more than animals with haughty disgust. They are there for his enjoyment and use, and serve no higher purpose than that. The Greeks believed this frame of mind above all other vices show tyranny for what it is, a disease of the mind. For under this self-delusion, the tyrant has to hide his knowledge of his weaknesses, frailty, and guilt. Tacitus writes how truly the wisest of men used to assert that the souls of despots, if revealed, would show wounds and mutilations, wheels left on the spirit like lash marks on a body by cruelty, lust, and malevolence. The tyrant seeks confirmation of his superiority over mankind and finds it in abuses of power. He seeks confirmation of his superiority over divine law and finds it by breaking every sacred bond and violating everything deemed inviolable. It's like a dare. The fifth and sixth vice, immorality and avarice. These are the vices which a tyrant can exercise without restraint and the very ability to do so constitute the lure and reward of tyranny. To have whatever one's eye lusts for, be it property, power, or people, 
This is the lure of the tyrant. The desire for absolute power would have little meaning for unscrupulous people if that power did not enable one to break all bonds which, which social position, morality, and laws would otherwise restrain. The Roman emperors would frequently display that power by taking the wives of men they had invited to the palace. Nero made it a hobby to display the most depraved behavior imaginable. Tiberius had his soldiers throw the richest man of Spain off a cliff so he could confiscate his money. There is no private property in a tyranny, nor is anything sacred. There is nothing where anyone can say, this is mine or this is private, or this is beyond your domain. What is there then to live or hope for? As the Athenian Euripides writes, why should one acquire wealth and livelihood for his children if the struggle is only to enrich the tyrant further? Why keep his young daughters virtuously at home to be the sweet delight of tyrants? I'd rather die than have my daughters wed by violence. Yes, freedom from tyranny is worth fighting for. Cicero, who saw the death of the Roman Republic in his time, sums it up like this in the Republic. As soon as a king takes the first step towards a more unjust regime, it once becomes a tyrant, and that is the foulest and most repellent creature imaginable, and the most abhorrent to God and man alike. Although he has the outward appearance of a man, he outdoes the wildest beasts in the utter savagery of his behavior. Remembering the first tyrant slayer of Rome, he writes that he became the first in this state to show that when it comes to preserving the people's power, no one is just a private citizen. It is the duty of every citizen to guard against tyranny and from becoming tyrants ourselves, and hopefully a renaissance of the Topos of the tyrant in our time can help to guard against this and to safeguard democracy and freedom. <laughs>